Welcome to Radical Resilience, the podcast. I'm your host, Pega Kadkodian. Resilience is more than just learning to bounce back from adversity. It is both a spiritual and practical journey of returning to the essence of who you are. With Radical Resilience, life can throw anything at you, and no matter how tossed around you get, no matter how hard you fall, you have the ability to get back up and come home to yourself. Here are the inspirational stories of women who embody radical resilience and learn the resources you need to reclaim your passion, purpose, and power. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Radical Resilience, the podcast. Um, my name is Pega Kadkodian. I am your host, and as always, thrilled to be here with all of you. Um, my guest today is somebody who is very dear to me. You may or may not have noticed that we've put the podcast on hold for a couple of weeks because I've just been very present to what the global climate has been and wanting to leave the airways open for necessary conversations that we need to be having right now around the racial climate in America. And um, having some uncomfortable conversations, having some very necessary conversations. And so it seemed appropriate for me to give pause today's guest and the reason I have her on is because she and I have been friends for a really long time and a few nights ago we were having a conversation just to catch up and of course we were going to talk about what's going on in the world and the conversation ended up moving into a really amazing direction and it was really rich and we both went shit I wish we had been recording this <laughs> so that we could share it with the world so it's my absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce you to Miss Nisreen Dewan hi Nisreen hi thank you for having me Oh my gosh, thank you for being here. Um, let me just say too, I have to acknowledge that it is incredibly generous of you to be here and to have this conversation, that it's really gracious of you to be willing to open up and share what your experience has been as a black woman in this country, really with the intention of moving the conversation forward, helping to educate some of our listeners, even though it's not at all your responsibility to do that. Yes, and I won't be doing that. I'll just be sharing. <laughs> Sharing and chatting. Not in a formal way, educating people, but allowing people um, the experience of listening with an open heart, you know, to uh, an individual's experience in this, in this, in this situation. Because I was saying to you uh, before we jumped on, you know, the conversation we had the other day, <laughs> even though I have people, you know, who are very dear to me in the Black community, like, you know, I've, I've best friends that I've grown up with since I'm 12 years old and I've bared witness to what the experience has been. I, of course, will certainly never fully be able to understand or grasp that experience. But the conversation mm -hmm. that we had the other day allowed my heart to open um, in listening to you and in being with you and, and, and being in that space of empathy. Yeah. And I thank you. And I believe that you know, if someone can get something out of this by listening and potentially make their world and subsequently the world a better place in even the smallest way, then great, you know? And then also I know that I'll be speaking to my experience and what I can, you know, what I've been taught and told and witnessed. Um, so hopefully those thoughts and words and memories and experiences can serve some sort of purpose at this time. Yeah. I mean, the goal is really to 
create the opportunity where healing can become possible, right? Create an environment where healing can become possible. Mm. Something that, that I've been present to is that right now, there's a very necessary piece of the equation, which is to allow the emotions to be felt. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's a necessary grieving process here if we are going to move forward and that that's not to be censored in any way. Right. And at the same time, you really have to create those spaces. You were talking about creating environments where healing can become possible, right? So you know that I think for healing to become possible, the wound has to be fixed. Something has to really tangibly change and be fixed for true healing to become possible. I think there's healing practices, self-care, care practices. And then at the same token, especially in the environment we're in right now, sometimes there's a time and a place for emotion because sometimes there's only room for you to fight. And if that fight is to help or uplift others or to demand mm -hmm justice or that something ceased happening, you know, then no, there is no place at that particular moment for emotion to take over and be centered because that's a luxury that I have not always had. So just acknowledging that as well, that it is mm -hmm. that and that, right. You know, thank you for that. You know, heard you share with me time and again over the course of our friendship experiences that you've had as a black woman in a predominantly white working environment and what you've had to endure in that space. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what that experience is and, and how you've navigated that and the toll that it's taken. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because as I think about it a little bit more, my experience as a black person, a black woman in a predominantly white work culture grew out of my experiences as a black woman in a predominantly white institution, like from school. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to guess, educated guess, that a lot of people have felt that way at certain times. And the people that I work with now are the, possibly the same graduates of those institutions so it's like those, all those behaviors and traits and all those things maybe carried over into work environment because sometimes the story is the same. So I think that we spoke on uh, just kind of day-to-day -day experiences because, right, it's where you spend most of your time at work. So we really touched on day-to-day -day experiences that I think uh, take a toll on a person when those experiences are intricately attached to your rent you're going to pay and the food you're going to put on your table and the security and safety that you have to feel as a person in the world gets attached to experiences that might be subpar and harmful on a, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. so say more say more about that um it's just a, it's a lot to take in right because 
I'm trying to think of, we've started talking about microaggressions Mm. and I'm not sure if everyone knows what they sound like. There's a lot of memes on it. Maybe there's information out there on documentaries or films. I'm not even sure. And so that can look like many things. You know, I had the opportunity to work at a place for a long time. And it's as simple as a customer coming in and I'm behind the desk and the computer screen. I'm actually training a young white woman into the computer system that we use. And the woman comes down the stairs and in a very complimentary intention manner say to her, oh, are you training her? Are you teaching her how to, how to do this? Mm. What's wrong with, hello, (laughs) what's wrong (laughs) with anything else than a judgmental, like, let me take a moment to put people in places. Let me take a moment to box people into where I think they should exist to make my world more comfortable. Yeah. So when my answer is actually, no, I'm training her in, you know, I'm the person you want to talk to. If there's anything you need here, I've been doing this for years with a little, Mm -hmm. almost like a break, a little fissure in her reality, uh, where there's Mm -hmm. a kind of a, a a look, a, a a cock of the head, like a dog hearing a sound, or I don't know, a person that heard something (laughs) far away and was wondering if they heard it. But there's that moment of, excuse me, like, who are you to tell me my world isn't the way I imagined it in my head? And that can seem like a, a confrontation when really it was just a simple correction to let them know what was happening. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because again, that person may not even be aware of her microaggression or, or the implicit bias that creates that, that sort of assumption in her mind that she immediately goes to, Oh, this is what the dynamic is here. And that's sometimes that's so frustrating. That's so mm-hmm. baffling. I've never walked up to a person in a store and just, I always say, excuse me, do you work here? You know, and if they're not, mm-hmm. if they're in plain clothes, I would never speak to them. Right. If they're obviously shopping with a cart and a purse, nothing an employee would have, picking up random things, I wouldn't ask them that. Yeah. If they're uniform that matches the colors of the store and has the logo on it, I might ask them that. And usually I say like, do you have a second of question? Yeah. But for that to not even be something someone considers is where it's not baffling. It's not surprising. It happens all the time. Yeah. So, uh, but I don't know what's going on in the mechanisms of that person's brain to, to do that. Yeah. And this is where I think Again, it's important that if you're not even aware that maybe that's that's the way you're sort of going on autopilot to really take some time and ask yourself these questions, to ask yourself some really tough questions and be like, do I do that? Do I, do I make assumptions um, about certain dynamics or hierarchies based on how somebody looks? Do I do that? I mean, that's, I think that's mm-hmm. you know, these, because I want this conversation to also, you know, 
this conversation isn't meant to be comfortable for people who are listening to it. It's meant to, Absolutely not. you know, it's, it's meant to be a bit confronting, like, so that, you, you yeah. know, so that you can be like, uh, wow. Yeah. I didn't even think, I didn't even think to consider that mm-hmm. because it's so ingrained, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. And honestly, to almost correct myself, I know the mechanism is, is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. The mechanism is systematic racism. Mm-hmm the um, systemic racism, the mechanism is anti-blackness. So although that person might not be aware, you know, that's probably the mechanism at play. (laughs) Yeah. And that should be part of that line of questioning to get specific and out of the possibilities. Well, why is this happening? Right. And to get specific and say, well, I've been taught and told from people that have experienced the world in a way I never have that maybe my views are anti-black. Let me look at that. Yep. Can those questions people ask themselves be, can you confront yourself (laughs) (laughs) so that I don't have to confront you for you? It is not the responsibility of the black community to be educating. Mm -hmm. There has been so many people who are like, well, I'm I'm an ally. I'm an ally. What should I do? It's like, well, it's not really the responsibility of the black community to tell you what to do. And so again, I thank you for your graciousness and your generosity, you know, to be here. Just assume that you're not a part of it. I was listening to um, Austin Channing Brown uh, on Brene Brown's podcast, you know, and, and she made a lot of really good points, which is, you know, on that podcast in terms of like Mm -hmm. proximity isn't the answer just because you happen to have a black friend or a black partner or what it doesn't mean you're exempt from Mm -hmm. that, the, the narrative that's existed in this country for Mm -hmm. so long on an unconscious level, you know, because it's, it's there, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the images that we see on television that, that inform us unconsciously. It's the, it's, if we're not hyper uh, aware of, of how the systemic racism or the systemic racism machine works, then we are, we are ultimately a part of it. You know, that, that we, we can, we are being programmed by it. If we're not consciously going, no, I'm not, I'm not going to buy into that. Right. White supremacy is effortful. It's full of effort. It's full of, there's so much money and marketing and profit and bottom line and necessity behind it. It's also interesting because usually, I learned this in linguistics class in college, but there's something called the principle of least effort. And so, although the intense, like all that profit, all that stuff behind it is so effortful. It falls into people in a way that feels like it is of no effort. And to think that you could take no effort to then fix something, if you really care about it, is not going to happen, you know? And so it's Mm. interesting because I think that people that try to subscribe to proximity to Blackness or uh, basically they want to take themselves out of the occasion. Wouldn't it be out of the equation? Wouldn't it be so sweet to take yourself out of the equation and no longer be a part of this problem? Choose that. Then you have to do nothing, <laughs> you know, but that's not reality. And, but people like to make it their reality because otherwise it's going to be effortful to fight that machine from the cellular level 
that has just been laid into you by something that took a lot of effort to put it there, keep it in place, maintain it. It takes a lot to maintain systemic racism. It's full of effort to systemically hold people down. That takes a lot of effort. But it comes to other people as being something that is like nonchalant and they don't even realize it's happening. But I realize it's happening. Black people in the world really feel the effort behind it all the time. It is so tangible, it's impossible to ignore. So this, that, that feels like two different worlds, two totally different worlds that people live in if all of our experiences and, you know, are different. That's, how do you bridge that? I think that's the question we're all asking right now, I, uh, or you know, those of us interested in moving forward in a proactive and positive way is how do we bridge them? I think it's a willingness to step into a world that we're uncomfortable with. How uncomfortable are you willing to get? Because I'm, I'm very uncomfortable. I'm extremely uncomfortable. It's intolerable. It's excruciating. It's exhausting. So I'm very curious about how uncomfortable other people are actually willing to get to see change. Thank you again for your willingness to be so real with us and, you know, and to just lay it all out there. It's courageous. So thank you. You know, it takes, it takes a lot and I know it takes energy. So I appreciate you for that. Speak more to, you know, you were saying it, it takes a toll um, when you're in that environment and you're experiencing the covert microaggressions, the implicit, you know, again, very subtle implicit bias on a day-to-day basis. I think in some ways, maybe during like retirement years, I'll be able to look back and truly see the full toll, the full scope. I think that there's a conditioning that happens to people like me that have been working in predominantly white spaces for an extended period of time and just operating in the world. Um, there's a way of being that is necessary for me to be able to thrive under these conditions to be able to survive under these conditions, um, to still be able to experience joy under these conditions and love and laugh and be creative, especially in a workplace. You know, you want your employees to be at 110% and not realizing that the way of the world could be non-equitably making someone else operate at a lower percentage um, mm-hmm. might be what some people experience. And then you've probably heard, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a common saying that says, you know, uh, people of color or black people have to work 110% to get, you know, a much less percentage, you know, 50% of the credit. And so, I think that there's a conditioning that comes from feeling those things. There's a conditioning that comes from feeling like you're not being heard. Um, 
and really big examples of that. I mean, in the simplest way, I've been in a work situation mm-hmm. where there is a question and there is one answer and I've gotten the answer and I give the answer and the response is, huh, well, I'm in, maybe I can ask such and such. Maybe I can get a little bit more information on that. I'm like, nope, that's, that's the answer. Like it's one plus one equals two. <laughs> and then a week later, someone coming back and be like, I did check and one plus one does equal two. <laughs> and me be like, what? That was a what? I told you the answer. I know. I just wanted to double check and make sure. I don't know what that is. If not, just not wanting to take action, you know, and also um, second guessing, second guessing people. Um, I'm not finding the best words, but I think that also it creates a isolating feeling at work where mm-hmm. you, in some cases, some employees might not be comfortable speaking up as much about things because they know who they're yeah. speaking up to and maybe what that feels like or what can come back from that. And sometimes it's a blow that comes back from that, whether that be feeling like you'll get passed over for something in the future, whether that feel like um, mm. just not being believed. Um, just like I said, from that instance, like not being believed can happen in the simplest of terms of getting a simple answer. And so it just grows from there. It gets bigger from there of not being believed, you know, being second guessed, being questioned. Um, your your mere presence is a a question of have people not opened the door for me and talk to me through the glass and kind of be like, Oh, we're we're closed. I'm like, I work here. Like literally Mm. take a look at me. I look like the poster child of this place. Um, please open the door. Thank you. Like, you know, and just having so much work to do, there's no time to correct that person or realign them with a better mindset. It's like, I gotta get to work. I could go crazy trying to catalog and express all the aggressions. Mm -hmm. You know, we call them micro, but they're aggressions (laughs) that I felt, um, as a, person in the working world for decades. Yeah. And I mean, as you're saying that, like I am feeling the weight, you know, of that could never, could never fully grasp that certainly. And I, I just, not to, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You know, what's great though, is that even though it would take me 10 hours to express them all, they are not a mystery. There are books and articles and newsletters and journals and people whose whole accounts on social network platforms go in depth about everything because my story is not unique, you know, and that's where some of the exhaustion comes in. It's not new. It's not unique. And so I think there's this vein of thought out there. It's like, wow, I could never imagine all the things. Well, it is in writing somewhere, trust. So yes, there is a way to find out. But again, that's that coming back to it being really effortful. It's not going to be easy. And so that information is 
out there. There is no mystery. You can get it all. And I'm sure people are expressing more on a regular basis and especially now. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I had asked you when I called, um, you know, I mean, as, as I would normally, but in, in particular about what's going on is how you feeling. You know, I feel like this is an incredible time in the world. And I think that people over the centuries have probably said the same thing. And I think that I feel um, in a way the same as I've always felt. And also like, it would be really cool if there is a big, significant, concrete change that could benefit me in my lifetime and the people that come after me. That would be amazing. That would be a whole new paradigm, like just a new world. So of course I have hope for that. And I hope people keep working towards that with a earnest compassion Mm -hmm. in their heart and a true willingness to get uncomfortable and give up some things to change. And Mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot of work. So, you know, but me, I'm making the best decisions I can with what I have. Yeah. And we were talking about how, you know, this is nothing new, right? The, what we've been seeing on the news, um, unfortunately, devastatingly, you know, the story of George Floyd is not new. Um, That has been going on since the inception of this country. And I asked you, what, what, if anything, feels different right now? about what's going on and the way people are mobilizing what what feels how how is it different this time or is it I think there are some things that aren't different at all one thing that feels different is it it seems to be having um this this heightened awareness seems to be having on the surface perhaps some impact on businesses, which is interesting. Um, Hopefully it has an impact on legislation and um, those systems in place that make change that impact people. It seems to have just created, and I think time really has to tell the story here because although it seems like something's more heightened or being looked at, which I think is true, you know, that's just the circles I'm in. I'm not in all, all the circles. I think there's some people that you could say the names of people that have passed too soon and should be alive today to a lot of people. And they would have no idea who you're talking about. And that's the reality that I'm aware of is people usually kind of affect their little circles and it's, it's just going to take time. So I feel 
yeah. the same and different and hopeful and disappointed and curious and exhausted. It's a broken record sometimes. I just have to see where it goes. Probably like all the people before me. No doubt. And, um, you know, I guess my prayer is that the volume has gotten turned up on this so much that it's not just a passing Mm -hmm. phase, that we keep the volume turned up on it and that we do start to see some radical changes um, as we move forward. I mean, that is obviously Mm -hmm. my, my prayer in all of this. And I hear you. I hear you. It can feel, I'm sure it must feel like, well, I don't know. I guess we'll see, you know, we'll see. We've been here before. I think we'll see. And I think it'll take, there just seems to be a really big difference in how much information people know, depending on their experience Mm -hmm. in the world, which makes sense. But like I mentioned earlier, that information is out there to be digested and understood. And so I think a bigger download of information is going to have to happen for people to really start to understand where we are in this time on this planet. Because it's just, I think it's the repeated um, teaching. It's the repeated act of continuously having to convince people Mm. of my humanity. And that is Mm. unconscionable. Why do I or anyone still have to do that? And so that alone is a huge thing that would have to be remedied. Why do I have to convince you of my humanity? you know, it would, can someone answer that? (laughs) Because it's insane. It's crazy making. And yet we are here and thriving and joyful and magical and just trying to simply live. So I think there has to be a much bigger download of information and empathy and radical change because I, I, you know, the things that happen at work, things that happen when you go to a store, we've been there, done that. We keep trying to tell people about it, but ultimately I'm just trying to convince people of my humanity. I shouldn't have to do that. That doesn't make any sense. It should be a given. We shouldn't even be, you know, and it happens in very overt ways. There are so many quantifiers to how people strip others of their humanity and it's happened for over eons, you know, over centuries. And so those are, that's changing mm-hmm. people's hearts. You know, it is more than reading books. It's more than, I, I don't know. If, if you can't see my humanity, I don't know how to change you. But yeah, I was about to ask you, like, where do we go from here? And I think you just said it, which is it goes beyond 
simply reading a book or watching a documentary or watching some movies, I think that's a good place to start, but it's about yeah. really looking to your heart, you know, and looking at how we can not change people's minds. How do we change at a heart level, you know, where a person's humanity is never questioned, where we look at one another and realize, you know, as is said in so many spiritual teachings, that we are in fact all one, that there really is only one of us here, that if you suffer, I suffer, you know, and where and how do we get from where we are now, where there is so much divisiveness and so much separation and so much othering Ooh. to a place where we are remembering ourselves as a human race. Yes. If it's to the point where we're trying to legislate humanity, like we're trying to say, Hey, do these more, um, do these actions that are more <laughs> conducive for the survival of humanity as opposed to chokeholds. You know, if we're having to legislate it, do people really feel it? It's got to go beyond the mind. It's got to, it's got to be a shift that happens on the heart level, um, on the spiritual level. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the word resilient because, you know, that is, you know, the name of the podcast is Radical Resilience you know, have been out there um, talking about resilience to people for years. How does that word sit with you as a Black woman? I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, <laughs> I think that Black women, Black people, all Black people personify resilience. We embody resilience. We breathe, live, sleep, eat walk, dance, yeah. create resilience. I think that it can be a frustrating label because it can bring back that stereotype of like strong black woman. Yes, we are. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm invincible. And I think that's where that um, forgetting people's humanity mm. comes in because people think we're so strong <laughs> that we are superhuman and can take more and more and everything and more nonstop. That is not the case. We know how to survive. So you will be presented something that doesn't mm steal my time, energy, my precious, unrenewable resources, like time and energy. <laughs> um, and so there are some things that shouldn't be withstood. You know, there is sort of a standard definition of resilience as withstanding or pushing through or bouncing mm. back from things. So I can appreciate where that would feel frustrating. Mm. It's like, mm -hmm. no, there are some things that should not be withstood, tolerated, pushed through, right? Um, and I appreciate you saying that, you know, my way of looking at resilience is maybe just a little bit unique in that, you know, my definition of being a resilient human being is not about pushing through or bouncing back or tolerating or withstanding things, but rather, you know, uh, a journey home 
to the essence of who you are, uh, a moving through the, the very real process, you know, of difficulty, like moving through it, not withstanding it, like, oh, I'm, I'm superhuman and I'm just going to let this bounce off me or bounce back, but rather I'm going to feel the, the weight of that. I'm going to experience that. I'm going to move through that pain um, to the heart of who I am, you know, and, and um, along that spiritual journey to essence, the essential aspect of who I am, I find um, my own sense of resilience, right? Is that I find it along the way and it certainly has nothing to do with withstanding. So, you know, I just appreciate hearing your perspective um, on that word because um, I think again, I get, I think it gets misconstrued sometimes as like, hey, chin up, buck up. You know, and it's like, no, 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 no. It's not about, it's not about buck up or chin up, but rather tap into the essence of who you are. Remember who you are, be with who you are. And that's, and that, you know, can make you resilient. I'll, I'll share this with you. This really redefined resilience for me. And I'd love to know what you think about it. So I read a book by Donna Hicks. Um, she's uh, talks about dignity a lot. And she talked about how, a person's dignity is not something that's ever taken away. It's their inherent value and worth. And that when a person has a sense of dignity, that's really what makes them resilient mm -hmm. is that they know their inherent value and worth, despite anything that the outside world might um, do, say, inflict upon them. Right. That sounds great. I love that. And you make me think back to a moment where I was very proud of the dignity that I had created for myself and that I stand in. And it was actually a moment where someone, this was in a work environment, looked me on face and in so many words told me, because you're so resilient, because I don't see you break down, because I don't see you crumbling, crying, tore up. For that reason, that's why I don't see you as a human being. They said to my face, I'm just trying to figure out if there's a human being in there. I can't, I, I just can't see you as a human being because I never see you break down. And there were so many reactions I could have had, but um, because I am the daughter of James and Deborah and have been raised mm. right, um, and the granddaughter of their amazing parents that helped them grow through so much that was happening in the world. You know, I was able to stand in all of my integrity and dignity and just kind of explain to that person that that is just the wildest thing I've ever heard. And I should never have to convince you of my humanity, nor should you ever see need to see me broken to see my humanity. That's really like, we could go into detail about that. And so, you know, and nothing was done about it. And so, you know, I have to stand in my dignity. If I didn't know who I was, that could have really negatively impacted me. And I know there are people that have been impacted negatively in that way, because that's a crushing thing to have. So if I didn't know myself, if I didn't have that mm -hmm. dignity, that knowledge of self, that could have been a whole different outcome or, you know, and I think it has 
maybe taken its toll. But in that moment, I knew that was not true. You know, I know who I, I know who I am. I know who I was in that moment too. I love it. So I could talk to you forever. But what I wanted to do is I, I have these rapid fire questions uh, that I've started asking people. I wonder if I could just ask you these few questions really quick before we wrap up. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's one of your favorite self-care practices? Sweet, sweet sleep. <laughs> Who are your three favorite personal development or spiritual teachers, living or deceased? There are so many people and I'm constantly reading all the time and soaking stuff in. So I'll just lay out mama, daddy, and my ancestors. There we go. Who is in your power posse? And these are people whose energies you call upon. They can be angels, deities. But when you are going through a difficult time and you're like, I am going to call on the energy of these people to stand behind me. I usually call you. (laughs) I need more people in my life. So that's something that is a really cool idea. I think that I could get a stronger posse together, but I usually call my closest people, loved ones, people that know me very well, even if it be in a specific way, but family and friends and loved ones. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, what are your top three all-time favorite books? I'm not sure the author's name, but Ruby. It's a book about a black woman because maybe there are lots of books called Ruby. A few years ago, I read Angela Davis's Women Racing Class. I'm pretty sure that's an excellent book. And anything by Octavia Butler. She's passed, but she's a black sci-fi author and she's just super amazing. Last one. What would you tell your younger self with the wisdom that you've acquired today? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I know, but it's real specific. (laughs) It's like, don't date such and such. Go here instead. Do this as a great alternative. Don't waste your time here. (laughs) But I think if I really had that opportunity, I would just do what I always do, which is trust yourself. The universe has some great things in store. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think I've ever been asked a rapid fire set of questions. Um, well, again, we could go on forever and, uh, you know, there's the, the richness of our conversations never, never, ever ceases to amaze me. And definitely this one was no exception to that. Thank you so much for your willingness to come on this podcast, to allow this audience to bear witness to you and your experience and, um, hopefully gain something from it. Uh, and, be inspired to take some greater actions and to stay involved and in the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was amazing. You're welcome. All right. So with that, thanks for listening. We'll uh, be back when the time is right with another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast for now with so much love, light and aloha from my heart to yours. Namaste.
I'm Pega Cadcodian. Thank you for listening to Radical Resilience, the podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure to go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate. And remember to share this with all the amazing women in your life. Join us next week for another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast.